while I was away on vacation, I, in, in prayer and contemplation, I felt like there were three things I needed to address. Um, and today's the second one. Um, the first last Sunday I preached the urgent need for us to ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We need to continually be asking for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Today uh, begins a second topic. And I want to tell a story about the nature of the kingdom of God to us, how we interact with the kingdom of God. But it's always good to set the setting, the context for a particular story. And so I'm going to whistle a tune. And the minute you recognize it, join me in the whistling. Okay? Are you ready? Join me as soon as you recognize it. So what was that the theme song to? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So this story today, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible story, we're talking about that ark. That's what we're talking about, okay? Now, the movie was mostly fiction, but the ark is a very real thing. And if we go back to 1 Samuel 6, we're at a situation in Israel's history where the ark has been filled, it's been made with stuff, and the ark... Um, gets dragged into a battle that Israel is destined to lose. The priesthood has been problematic for God. The Israels have been in the battle. They've lost the battle, and they figured, you know, in classic formation, things didn't go well. Oh, maybe we'll think about God now, right? And so maybe, maybe if we just grab the ark and bring it in, it will help us win the battle. This is very much akin to us saying, God, here's what I plan to do. Now you come and help me do my plans. It's like making God my servant, right? And we know it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be, God, what would you have me do, right? And then we follow his plan, not trying to drag God kicking and screaming to make our plan work, right? But that's what Israel has done. Israel has lost the battle. They're trying to figure out why they lost. They don't want to look at themselves. So they take the ark, they drag it into battle, and they get beat again, and the Philistines take the ark. And so the ark of the, the symbolic presence of God for Israel is lost to these godless or these infidels, the Philistines. The problem is, once the ark gets into the hands of the Philistines, they realize very quickly it is not good for them to have it. And in the first encounter, they put it in their temple, and the next morning they wake up, and their god, their idol, has fallen on the floor face down. And so they move at different places, and everywhere it goes, the people are infected, and there's illness, and there's difficulty, and there's tragedy. And, and after moving it a few times, the Philistines said, we got to get this ark out of here, because it's killing us to have the symbolic presence of the Hebrew god on our territory. And so they want to get it out of there. And so 1 Samuel 6 begins telling the story. And this is how they figure out how they're going to get it out of there. Because no one wants to touch the thing, right? It's like touching plague. So no one's going to touch it. And so, so the wise men of the Philistines tell the Philistine leaders how they're going to get rid of this. This is what they're going to do. They're going to put the ark on a cart. And they're going to attach it to two cows. 
but not just any cows. They're going to attach it to two cows who have just given birth and their calves are over here. And they're going to put the calves behind the cows. They're going to put the ark cart attached to two cows facing Israel and then let them go. And this is their thinking. If it really is God causing all this chaos in our country because of this ark, then God will lead the ark back where it's supposed to go and the cows will go forward. But if all this other stuff was just a coincidence, just bad luck, whatever, well, the cows would do what cows naturally do, and that is they will turn around and go find their calves. Because that's what mother cows do, right? They want to be with their calves. Their calves need them. The calves got to feed. So they put the ark on the cart. They latch the cows to it. And off the cows go straight to, straight to Israel. Never another thought about their calves. The people of Israel, most of them, welcome the cart back. The, the ark lands in kiriath Jearim, and it stays there for about... 20 years. And the ark is in Israel, but doesn't get moved to Jerusalem until David is securely on the throne in Jerusalem. And the story then continues in 2 Samuel 6. So you got to jump over to the next sixth chapter when David goes to get the ark and retrieve it. Okay. So David goes to return the ark to Jerusalem. He goes to Abinadab's house, and they're going to bring the ark home. And so they put the ark on a cart again. Shouldn't have done that. Ark doesn't belong on a cart. There's rules for how you deal with the ark. But they put the ark on a cart, and two guys, Uzzah and Ahio, are driving the cart, when the oxen stumbles a little bit, the cart shakes a little bit, there's a tremor in the ark, and Uzzah reaches out and puts his hand on the ark to stable it, and is immediately struck dead. Because you don't touch the ark. There are these long acacia wood poles that go on either side of the ark. And the Levites pick up the poles, and the ark is carried. It's borne on the shoulders of men because the symbol of God is too holy to touch. You don't touch it. Well, David thinks this is stupid, and he's angry at God, doesn't continue bringing the ark to Jerusalem. He stops right there and doesn't understand why it matters so much. Why does this guy die just because he, he, he was trying to do a good thing, wasn't he? David's mad because he doesn't understand this basic thing. You can't assign to others what God requires you to do. The Levites are required to carry the ark. But it seems easier to just let the pack animals carry the weight. Throw it on a cart. Let's get going. Not so fast. There is a reason that the presence of God, which is symbolized by the ark, must be carried by people. God has chosen to work through people. The kingdom of God is always carried forward by human hands in the way that God directs. There are no shortcuts. 
There are no easy ways forward. God's ways are not necessarily convenient. Perhaps they seem inefficient at times, but there are reasons for them. Well, David's just too afraid to bring the ark home because of God's demanding nature. So he stops the parade, sends the ark elsewhere in Israel. You know, he puts it in somebody else's backyard to let them bear the responsibility for it. Sounds like us when the town is voting on whether to have a landfill or not. Yeah, we need the landfill, just not in my backyard, right? He shifts the ark off to somebody else. He doesn't really say anything to the Levites according to the story, but we know the Levites are the ones who are supposed to be carrying this thing. We know the ark is supposed to be accompanied by sacrifice and worship. But after the ark has been in someone else's backyard for a few months, it becomes obvious that that home is prospering in Israel. And the Lord is blessing the place where his presence rests. And so David says, well, maybe we better give this another try. And we can speculate about David's motivation. I don't know. But this time they follow the instructions carefully. There's a sacrifice made. There's worshiping in front of the ark. This new parade looks nothing like the old parade. And David personally leads the entourage as the people of Israel bear the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what I'm learning from this picture. The kingdom of God is born on our shoulders. The kingdom comes through us. We can't assign the job of bearing the kingdom of God to anyone else. The job is ours. The kingdom will travel through our personality, by our commitment, by our contributions, and by our service. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed this morning and we pray every Sunday. When we pray, let your kingdom come, the grammar of that statement really it means, let your kingdom come through me. Let your will be done through me. Let your name be hallowed through me. In every one of those, the tense of the verb means through me. We're praying that, Lord, it's not just that we want your kingdom come to come, and we do want that. We want to be used to bring your kingdom. That's what we're praying every time we say that. Every time we pray that, we're saying, Lord, through me, let your name be hallowed. Through me, let your kingdom come. Through me, may your will be done. Do you understand the implication? We are bearers of the kingdom of God. It advances through our lives, through our commitments, through our contributions, through our service. Now, I'm not hinting that the kingdom is limited to our resources. The fruitfulness of the kingdom of God is accomplished by Christ alone. But by his creative choice, he has designed his mission on earth to be fundamentally entwined with the effort experience, and sacrifice of his children. I do not know, I do not understand why he chose to allow us to participate to this degree. There are certainly other ways he could have set up the kingdom, and I know he probably really didn't need our help to begin with. But he made the choice, the creative choice, to include us and to use us as his methodology. 
He has designed the way we carry the kingdom. And I think he's done it for some of these reasons. He's designed us to carry the kingdom to keep us connected to him and connected to one another. He's designed that we carry the kingdom in order to keep us involved in the work of the ministry, to motivate us to care for others, and to shape us by the work that we do together. I mean, the implication is if we're not working together, we're not receiving the necessary transforming grace that he wants to send us so that we can be shaped to work together. It reminds me of the man who willed a great sum of money to his son. And the only stipulation was that his son call his mother on the phone every week and that they talk for an hour or until the mother was ready to hang up. That's a leveraged gift. He leveraged his gift to create an ongoing connection between his son and his wife. That's a leveraged gift. And and I think that the ark of God, which symbolizes the presence of God wherever it went, by being born on the arms of God's people, it meant that God's presence would forever be carried by the people. This, this is a leveraged gift. God is going to bless his creation and he's going to do it through his people. And so he's leveraging his blessing to be carried by his children so that through them all nations of the world could be blessed. It makes me ask the question, how do we bear the work of the kingdom of God today? We understand that we're obligated to serve, and we are delighted to serve, serving as if all of our work was for Jesus himself. We know that, right? Whatever work we do, we do it as unto the Lord. That's what we're called to do. So whether we're cleaning toilets or doing brain surgery, it's all to the Lord, because that's the work we've been given, and we do it to his glory. I was reminded of the way around here we bear the kingdom when I was watching Mark Davis and Rick Pisani pull a hot water heater out of the basement of one of our homes, that's, that's part of how we bear the kingdom. I mean, Pat Kane had already installed the replacement hot water heater in the building, and, and they were dragging the other one out on a Saturday morning when they could have been doing other things because that's how we bear the kingdom. We didn't get in the road of Bob who was uh, mowing the lawn yesterday or, or doing all the things that make this part of the kingdom operate. But that's part of what it means to bear the kingdom. We um, care for this facility as one way we bear the kingdom. In an earlier day, when there was more of an apprentice model to family relationships, it was not infrequent that an oldest son would inherit the father's business and would be an an apprentice to them. And, And in time, the tools of the trade would get transferred from father to son, so that the business and the work could continue. And we here, having just celebrated 125 years of ministry, understand that this building is a tool that we have been gifted, just like an apprentice, father to son, and and we use this building as a tool to bring his kingdom. We have lots of space here to do lots of different things and, and kids learn here every day and people come to celebrate recovery at night and all these various ministries are part of advancing the kingdom of God but we have to use the tools. 
So we have to care for this place. We have to invest in this place. We have to rake the stinking leaves when they fall down. We have to take care so that we can pass this tool down to our sons and daughters who will continue to carry the work of the kingdom. So, you know, all the work we do, we do as unto the Lord. And sometimes it's not convenient and sometimes it's not efficient, but there's a madness to God's method, right? And the madness is he wants to keep his people and his kingdom linked together so they can bear the kingdom of God. There's a second way that we bear the work of the kingdom of God today, at least one more way. And that is, we're also called to be cheerful givers. And we talk about giving in the Bible, we often talk in terms of tithes. You can't avoid the topic of tithing. In fact, we wouldn't want to avoid it because it is a practice that brings us such incredible blessing. The word tithing literally means 10%. And in the Bible, it is first used when Abraham gives 10% of the spoils of a conflict to Melchizedek, who is the prince of Salem, the prince of peace. And some believe he was a, an, an, an instance where Jesus took form on the earth long before he came. That establishes the baseline for the tithe at 10%. A careful study of the Old Testament will yield many different facets of how the Israeli people gave to God to support the kingdom. A tithe of the increase of the field of the crop was required annually. This was a first fruits offering of sorts. After the seed for the grain was removed for the following year, the first 10% of the harvest went to the temple. The firstborn of every animal was holy to God and is owned by God in the Old Testament. Giving it is required. Now this wasn't included as a part of the tithe since this part already belonged to God. This was above the tithe, as I understand in the scriptures. So the firstborn son is holy to God and owned by God, giving him to God as required. In case of firstborn animals, most are eligible to be redeemed. That means instead of giving your firstborn calf to the temple, depending on what the temple needed and what the regulations were, you could buy that animal back from the temple and redeem it and give them the standard going rate for a calf instead. And so there are different ways the giving was actually accomplished, but each firstborn son also belonged to God and they always could be redeemed. But redeemed sons always remember they belong to God, that they have a special responsibility for the kingdom. So, so how were these tithes or these gifts given? Think about the process. I mean, we have a Sunday offering. How did they do that back then? Well, the tithe brought in as soon as the harvest was completed for a particular crop involved a covenant meal. As the offering was being made, a dinner was also being prepared right at the temple. The meal was eaten in the temple and the priests were invited to join the family and the extended family members as they celebrated the goodness of God to them. The giving of the gifts, the bringing of the tithe, was accompanied by worship and celebration. So it wasn't like you're paying your tax bill and you're sort of grumbling under your breath while you write the check. 
This was, we're going to the temple, we're bringing 10% of what God gave us, we're returning a portion of the crop He enabled us to grow, provided the weather for us to grow, provided the protection for us to grow, and we're going to celebrate with joy what God has given us in this particular way. The remainder of the tithe, after the meal had been eaten, went to the support of the priests and the Levites. This list, this description, isn't exhausted. There were other required gifts, but the tithe was the basic foundation of all of this. Now, tithing isn't mentioned that much in the New Testament, 10 times in total, but at least one of those times is very revealing. This is Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because they are so careful to keep the tithing laws to the tiniest little bit of the, the harvest of their mint. I don't know how you give 10% of your mint harvest if the whole harvest can fit in your hand. I don't know. I mean, you're probably working with a microscope or something to get that. And he's saying, you guys are so careful to keep the tithe and you ignore the big picture of the law, which is justice and mercy and righteousness. You, you can't ignore that stuff. But notice what he says. You're so anxious to practice tithing, you ignore the big picture. Do the big picture stuff, but don't neglect the other, right? Right there, Jesus tells us, don't neglect tithing. It's still on the table. It's still valid. And the fact that the Pharisees are doing it means that a thousand years after tithing was established, it's still a part of the Hebrew culture in its day. And it's still a part of our culture today. Jesus emphasizes not only the importance of tithing, but the spirit of giving in the face of poverty. You know the story of him sitting in the temple court when a woman comes by and puts two mites in the offering jar, and he says, look, did you see that? Lots of wealthy people came through and put large amounts in, but this woman gave out of her poverty. Gave out of her poverty. And he elevates her gift among all others. Because the gift, the amount of the gift isn't important, right? It's the sentiment behind the gift. It's the level of sacrifice involved. It's the love that the gift reveals for the Father that means everything to God. For us today, giving to God as a part of the way the kingdom is communicated through us focuses us on staying connected to the kingdom and working with him. We, we heard stories just a few weeks ago of the sacrifices that people made when this building was being built, of the offerings that far exceeded the 10% because there was a goal in mind and because a group of people were convinced that God was leading them to do something significant. And God prospered that group and enabled them to pay off all the obligations over a period of time. And it required sacrificial giving from many of you to get to that place. But God blesses the kinds of things he leads us to do. Whatever God leads us to do, he provides all that we need in order to do it. 
and we can trust him to do that. We bear the kingdom of God when we support the work of the church and its pastors, the work of missionaries around the world, and the ongoing work of the kingdom in every land. We bear the kingdom when we share our resources with those who are around us so that they may know the shalom of God in their lives. I'm sure that you know this, but as a foundational statement, you have to hear these words from Malachi, because this is really where uh, the stake is driven into the ground when God deals with Israel around the issue of tithing. This is Malachi 3, starting in verse 7. This is a passage that deals with renewal and restoration of the nation when they've had hard times. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God answers, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. In this passage, God is promising blessing to those who tithe, to those who bear the kingdom. Let me just summarize briefly. We have been assigned by God to be bearers of the kingdom of God, and his kingdom comes through us. One of the ways that this happens week after week is by the way, by the manner in which we bring tithes and offerings to the house of God as a part of our worship. The offering we bring is as essential to worship as the singing, the praying, and the preaching. The offering is a part of worship. Tithing is a fundamental way that we say we choose to participate as bearers of the kingdom of God in our day, in our time, at our location. The offering we bring at some level replaces the sacrifice that the Hebrews brought to the temple in their day. Most importantly, just as the Sabbath was designed to bless us, the system of tithing was designed with us in mind to bless us because God knows it is good for us to tithe. That was a quick summary. But here's the disclaimer. In the early church, the idea of tithing was not strongly embraced because that would have been considered too small a gift to bring. For those folks, everything the early church folks owned was on the line for God and the kingdom. To give so little, to give only 10%, would have been bad form. If your neighbor needed something, you helped them. If the group needed something, you helped them. As much as you could give, you helped them. Today, we still affirm that God has the right to call on any or all of our resources. But for the sake of convenience, we embrace this Old Testament model of tithing as a benchmark for giving. 
a benchmark that God said he will most certainly bless. Now, those of us who have lived in the church for a long time will give rapid testimony to the fact that when we tithe, God blesses us. My father-in-law used to love to tell the story, Nancy's father, about how he actually was tithing before he was a Christian. Because the testimony to the blessing of tithing was so strong in his extended family through his mother that it was unthinkable to collect a check and not tithe because God had given him the health, given her the health to be able to work, to do anything at all. And it was just basic to their experience. And for him, tithing preceded salvation, which is really an interesting thing. If I took time this morning to ask you to tell your tithing stories, we would be here a very long time. I've heard some of them, and I've heard what God has done in response to your giving and your sacrifice for him. I can tell you that if you've never considered the practice of tithing, you're missing an amazing thing. Now I know that according to the law of averages and what we know about debt in America, there is every likelihood that there are some here today for whom the practice of tithing feels like an impossibility. My goal is not to generate guilt or to beat you with a stick if you're not tithing. But by the same token, I don't have the right to give anyone a pass on this because the practice of tithing isn't something I thought up. The Spirit will give you guidance if you think that currently that commitment is too far beyond your reach. And candidly, I don't know what blessing the Spirit has in store for you as you step by step choose to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in this matter. But I know that when the Spirit gives guidance, He blesses obedience. He blesses obedience. And the attitude of our heart means everything to Jesus. So whatever we do to follow His leading, it's important to remember that we give with joyful hearts. Hearts that are grateful for the possibility of participating in any worship offering at all, understanding all that we have has been given by him. He will bless us and enable us because in the big picture, he's trying to communicate. He's trying to articulate his love for the world through you. He wants to use you to bless others. He wants to use you to spread the good news of the gospel. He wants to use you as ambassadors for the kingdom. And this is part of being a part of the family. If you haven't considered tithing before, I ask that you prayerfully consider it and that you take God up on his promise. Because after all, service in the kingdom of God is just not optional. And we need to serve in the way he directs, not in the ways that we think are comfortable for ourselves. And when we serve, we are delighted to serve because we know how richly we have already been blessed by him. Even if it's just the thought of being included in the family, it's an amazing blessing. Our salvation is the greatest blessing we have. And we've been born again. We've been brought into the family. We've been forgiven of our sins. Our lives are completely new and transformed. And we are grateful. And we must express that 
gratitude. Bearing the kingdom of God is a blessing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you chose to use us as your kingdom stretches throughout the world. We are grateful that you slowed down enough for us to catch up. We're grateful that you give us purpose and meaning as your children. And Lord, I pray today that as a community here, we would take seriously the gifts and tools we have been given by our forebears. That we understand the gift that this facility is to us. And that we will care for it and continue to use it to bring your kingdom to this community. Lord, I pray you would make us more cognizant of the gift of this body of believers to us. How you have given us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us when we are in dark days, to encourage us, to support us. Lord, we are so grateful for this fellowship that is an amazing blessing to us. Lord, we are so grateful for the presence of your Spirit in our lives, which continues to lead us forward, which continues to remind us of the times we've fallen short, and continues to forgive us and show us your ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us be obedient to all you call us to. That we, we, that we would hear the voice of your Spirit. That we would be quick to obey all that your Spirit calls us to do. And that we would serve you by being willing bearers of your kingdom. That the world may know that Jesus Christ saves. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing a, a chorus in closing? And I hope this will be your prayer as we work together. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be. servant make me a servant make me a servant today I don't preach this service this morning because the balance sheet of the church finances shows a tiny bit of red ink that's not enough motivation for me to preach this I preach this this morning because participation in cheerful giving to the kingdom is best for you and is best for me. And the experience of my lifetime says that God clothes me more graciously than the grass of the fields or the birds of the air, that he provides everything I need when I honor him in this way. And that's my experience of 40-some years of serving Christ. And I know there are others here who would testify to the same thing. 
that God honors the commitment of his people and it is best for us it is good and pleasing to God if we will participate in bearing the kingdom because we can't assign this work to anybody else this work is ours by the leading of the Spirit so I encourage you let's bear the kingdom together and see what God will do Say that one more time with me. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be. Make me a servant, make me a servant, make me a servant today. I pray that you will know the joy of being used by God now and always to his glory. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.